Well, it is a delight to be with you. Thank you so much for your warm welcome. Let me just begin with a question today, and that is that as you think about your growing up, what did you learn from your parents about what the key values of life were? Let that sink in. Did they, what message did your parents give you about how you should live well? I'm sure they gave you some message. Maybe it was explicit, maybe it was just implicit. Was it to work hard? Was it to be honest? Was it to be cutthroat? Was it to find a good spouse, have lots of kids, don't have any kids? Was it to make lots of money or was it that money doesn't matter? If you actually just look inside and say, what values did I receive or did I reject from my parents or others? What were they that taught you how to live well that really ingrained in you from an early day how I can find happiness and how I can really live well. Because whatever those messages were have shaped you and have shaped me up to this day whether you're aware of them or not. And then let me ask another just as relevant and even deeper question. If we were to ask Jesus that question, what would he say? What does Jesus have to say if, if we wanted to know what does Jesus value, what does he say about how we can live well, how we find shalom or satisfaction or true happiness, what would he say if we were listening to him? Well, I think he'd say several different things, certainly love. He would certainly talk about living in relationships of, of forgiveness and mercy, about maybe summing it up with loving God and loving others. But I think one of the clearest and weightiest places we can learn and, and hear the answer to that question of what does Jesus value is whenever he speaks beatitudes and woes. There's actually a few places this happens. We just heard it from Luke 6. Probably the more famous place is from Matthew chapter 5 what we call the Sermon on the Mount, and then Matthew chapter 23, where you have these woes. But again, here in this shorter form in our gospel text for this morning, and, and the question is, what actually is a beatitude? What is a beatitude and what is a woe? Well, beatitude's kind of a confusing word. Is it, it, is a, is it a be happy attitude? I, I don't think so. Uh, maybe more confusingly, is it a blessing? It's actually not. A beatitude is not a blessing. It's not saying, if you do this, God will bless you. Rather, that word beatitude, you may or may not know, comes from the Latin word beatus that we've just adopted into English. And beatus means happy. It means flourishing. It means basically shalom or peace. And that Latin word is actually the the translation of a Greek word, makarios, and that's what we technically see in Luke 6. We call these makarisms. And makarios means the same thing, happy or flourishing. Now, my point is not to overwhelm you or, you know, with Greek and Hebrew words or Greek and Latin words. That's not the point. The, the point is very straightforward, that Jesus, like every other sage in the world, is describing for us the great question we have, how do I actually find life? That's what a beatitude is. And if you think about it, every religion, 
every philosophy, every CrossFit gym, every inspirational quotes book, every parent is telling us what is the way to live that will promise true life. You've probably heard we have lots of them. They're often summed up in pithy little sayings, whether it's Gandhi saying, live as if you were to die tomorrow, learn as if you were to live forever, or Ralph Waldo Emerson offers a beatitude and do not go where the path may lead, but go instead where there's no path and leave a trail. You might think of a, a beatitude like from Mark Twain, never put off until tomorrow what you can do the day after tomorrow, right? <laughs> or the great Charles Schultz of Peanuts fame, don't worry about the world coming to an end today, it's already tomorrow in Australia, right? <laughs> Whatever it is, whether they are serious or funny, behind every beatitude or macroism are these, what they are is these short, memorable sayings that are actually inviting us to learn to see the world in a certain way and thereby to be in, a world, in the world in a certain way that promises life. And all ancient sages gave these, and Jesus does as well. And the opposite of a beatitude or a macroism is not a curse, but a woe. And what a woe is, it's an anti-macroism, it's a, it's a warning, it's an invitation to be careful about ways that we might see and be in the world that will not result in life but destruction. Our Old Testament reading from Jeremiah is a great example of that. It uses the word curse there, but the image there is one of being a shrub that's blown away or being a tree that's rooted. And you could also think of Psalm 1 is a good example of this as well. And again, macrisms and woes are an invitation to see. So if we return again to what Jesus has to say, he comes down from the mountain, he's healing people, he's blessing people, and he says again, he gives us four Macarisms and four woes right with each other. He says again in Luke 6, blessed are you or flourishing, we could translate it that way, flourishing are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, flourishing are you who are hungry now, for you should be satisfied, flourishing or blessed are you who weep now, flourishing or blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And then he matches that with four exact woes that line up. But woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are full now. Woe to you who laugh now. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. And do you see that these four exactly match each other? This is kind of a simpler version than what we have in the Sermon on the Mount, but they match each other. And let me just make a couple of observations about this. First notice the fundamental future orientation of what Jesus is saying. That in all that Jesus teaches, he's inviting us to think not just about the now, but about the time coming. And that's a time coming we see all throughout the Gospels where there's going to be a great reversal. That the way we see things now and the way we value things and the way the world values things, things are going to be reversed. The lowly will be exalted. The humble will be exalted to the place. Those who are proud will be humbled. The reverse is true as well. And the logic of all of these beatitudes and woes is really found in the second half. That is, how could it be 
that you're flourishing, you're blessed, and you're poor, it's because there is a time coming. Yours is the kingdom of God, that thing that is coming. How can you be flourishing or blessed when you're hungry now, for you'll be satisfied in the future? How can you be blessed or flourishing when you're weeping now because you will laugh? There is a time coming when it's reversed and so forth. But I think the most shocking thing and the most glaring part about these verses, and as, as, as John said, you know, the, these, these are hard verses to hear. And the most glaringly shocking thing about them is these statements about the poor versus the rich. And throughout the church's history, we Christians have struggled and wrestled with what to do with these kind of verses. Because actually when we read the Bible, the message about wealth and success and money is quite mixed. You see that often God's blessings are upon those who have worked hard and succeed, and that's a good thing. That's the economy of how God has made the world. But we also see the disciples who follow Jesus, they literally leave everything to do so. We see a person like the rich young ruler who is not able to enter the kingdom of heaven because of his riches. We hear words like the parable of the sower where Jesus says that some people's faith gets choked by, in this devastating phrase that we should let sink into our hearts, the deceitfulness of riches. Do you really think that riches are deceitful? <laughs> That's kind of the nature of deceit is that you don't think that they are. The deceitfulness of riches. And you see, it's easy to fall off the knife edge on either side here, that we could somehow think that there's an inherent value in poverty or we can fall off the other side, and I think this is probably what most of us do in the modern West. We can so overly spiritualize these words that we don't feel the pinch of them. We don't feel the push on our souls. And here's the question to help us get at what these verses mean. What do the, what do the states and experiences of being poor and being hungry and mourning and being slandered, what do those what do those have to do with and how do those relate to being rich and having full bellies and freedom and laughter? Because again, it's not that there's an inherent value in those, in those states of poverty and hunger because if you look at them, they're going to be reversed, right? There's nothing inherent. This is not God's goal for us because they're going to be reversed. But here, I think, is the issue. The key for these verses is to understand that these experiences of, especially in the woes of richness and fullness and laughter and everyone speaking well of you, those things have the power to shape us, to shape our souls in ways that are the opposite of God. I've been traveling a lot in the last six months especially. I think I, was in eight, I think I was on 18 planes in January alone traveling. Some of you fly more than that, I realize. But as I've been flying more, and I'm a Delta man, and I've, so I've achieved some medallion status, and so I always fly Comfort Plus. Like, I don't fly main cabin anymore. Not quite, don't have enough money to fly first class, but I always fly Comfort Plus, this good middle-class seating, right? Upper middle-class seating, maybe, or something. Well, a couple of weeks ago when I was flying, for various reasons, my flights got changed, and I had to fly main cabin, and I thought I was gonna die. <laughs> And I realized in my soul, I'm a comfort plus man. 
I'm so used to flying Comfort Plus that I expect that that's what my experience is going to be. And don't even get me started on Southwest. I will never fly Southwest. Sorry if you're a Southwest pilot, but I need to choose my seat beforehand. I don't want to get stuck in the middle, right? So what has happened there? What's happened is that a blessing of having the ability to have a little bit more comfort has so seeped into my soul that it has become who I think I am. And friends, this is the deceitfulness of riches. This is the power that can happen and does happen. And so Jesus isn't cursing those like most of us here who have plenty. He's inviting us to pay attention and to recognize that a great reversal is coming and our only hope for true life for now and eternity is to be aligned with him. And so, so we need to pay attention to his words that remind us, that say, there's no life really to be found in these ways where everything goes well for you now. So what do we do? Well, I started by get, beginning, what does Jesus value? What would he want to tell us about how to live well? I think what he'd want to say to us is, he actually cares about you, and he wants you to flourish. And the ways that the world and your flesh and the devil tell you you will flourish are not true. That you will flourish by aligning your lives and hearts with him and his coming kingdom because that's where life is to be found. Let me pray. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, God three in one, that in all of our sin and all of our just foolishness and all of our pride, even so you are gracious and kind. And we simply ask that you'd move by your spirit and do another layer of deepening and life-giving work in us. And we pray these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.